The views and opinions of this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers. There is substantial risk of loss in trading futures and options, which you should carefully consider prior to trading. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, we saw the soy complex find some pressure on the day Thursday with corn and wheat and livestock trade relatively mixed. We saw crude oil move a bit higher and some new economic data out to look at on Thursday. We're going to talk about all that more here today on Market Talk. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Great to have you along for the ride here on the show today as we take a look at what is happening in the markets and issues impacting rural America. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk markets later on with Brian Doherty from Total Farm Marketing. He'll join us in segment three today for a conversation. Also in segment two, we're going to listen back to a, a recent interview I had on AOA with Corey Geiger, lead dairy economist at CoBank. He's got a new uh, report out on the CoBank Knowledge Exchange. We're going to look at that and also discuss just some of the trends he's seeing in the dairy market as a whole. That's coming up in segment two here today. Also coming up later in the show, we'll take a look at news headlines, the American Farm Bureau Federation adopting their policy priorities for 2024. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get some more thoughts on this farm bill stalemate that continues over feeding versus farm programs. We have December egg production numbers up 3%. We're going to talk about that. Uh, emergency relief program payments seem to be concentrated in two states, North Dakota and Texas. We're going to get details on that and more coming up with our news headlines later on in the program. First up, though, let's take a look at some of the market action we saw on Thursday. Joining us for a conversation on our midday commentary, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. We look at some of the pressure in the soy complex, also discuss some of the economic data out, the energy market, and livestock on Thursday. Here is Arlen Suderman from StoneX starting with his thoughts in the soybean trade. Yeah, very disappointing export sales in this morning's weekly export sales report released by USDA. Frankly, it was disappointing across the board, but soybeans, I think, mostly because we're coming now toward the end of our prime shipping season for soybeans, and Brazil's been able to take so much business from us. And and, and the fact that we're getting these weak sales now is an indication that uh, the cash market in Brazil is saying there's not a problem with our crop. Now, it's going to be smaller than anticipated, smaller than they would like, but not too small to meet their export demand as they're starting to harvest cash basis is plummeting there. And if you take a look at prices of soybeans shipped into Chinese ports, what they cost coming from Brazil versus the United States for shipment in February, $2.14 a bushel cheaper coming from Brazil than coming from the U.S. Gulf in March and April bids or have an even bigger discount than what it is for February. So it doesn't give us a lot of hopes for being able to make up the deficit right now. We're trailing the seasonal pace needed to hit USDA's target for hitting that target by about 53 million bushels when you look at our current shipment pace. And it might be tough to close that gap. Arlen, I know we got a decent amount of economic data out on Thursday as well, including GDP numbers. Can you share some highlights for what you saw there? 
Yeah, as we look at GDP, it came in hotter than what was expected at an annualized rate of 3.3% growth in the fourth quarter of the year. Now, that is slower than the 4.9% we saw in the third quarter, but that's well above the 2% growth expected by analysts. So it shows that the economy is still going. It's it's slowing its growth pace, but it's still pretty solid. And we saw that also in durable goods orders as well. Now, the headline durable goods sales were that were flat in December. But once you take out transportation, which those numbers are very volatile, we still saw some decent growth um, when you take out transportation of six-tenths of a percent month-on-month in December. And that was nearly triple the two-tenths of a percent gain that analysts expected. Arlen, watching the energy markets too, I believe I saw this right, nearly what eight-week highs in crude oil early on Thursday. Crude's up above uh, that $76 a barrel mark, and uh, it seems like a lot of that just coming back to the issues that we have go- ongoing in the Middle East and with Russia, Ukraine, and more. Just some of those geopolitical tensions and risks seem like they're kind of weighing in the energy markets here this week. And this is something I'm watching for as a pre-indicator of inflation, a rebound in inflation later this year. Uh, Yes, you're exactly right. We did see more strikes on ships in the Red Sea. We're also seeing Ukraine start to expand their capability in in making strikes against some of Russia's oil and and refinery infrastructure as well inside of Russian borders and and well outside of Ukraine. That suggests that Ukraine's now changing its strategy a little bit and has a capability to do so that could be more disruptive. And so overall, we're putting more geopolitical risks into this crude oil market, pushing the highest it's been since the end of November for prices based on the WTI and starting to break the charts higher again. And real quick, livestock trade, kind of a mixed bag over there. It looks like on Thursday, any notes for you and the proteins today? It's generally continuing to see that firmer cash cattle market provide a little bit of support there. The product market has been hot lately because of the tightness of supplies, because of the winter weather that we had across the plains in the Midwest. We lost a lot of product production out of that. Now we're repricing in what the new supply and demand fundamentals are. And once again, comments there from the Midday Commentary with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. Always good to get Arlen's thoughts and perspective on what is happening in the market trade. And again, that soy complex showing a little bit of pressure and uh, uh, interesting there watching all of this Chinese stimulus money, of course, and our economic news and the potential of um, continued inflation. As Arlen indicated, he's watching that energy market for some of those uh, inflation factors and so there's a lot still swirling around these markets that we've got to pay attention to here in the weeks and months ahead and uh, coming up later in the show again as i mentioned earlier we're going to take a look at some of the market settlements from thursday and have a conversation with brian doherty senior market advisor at total farm marketing Looking forward to getting Brian's thoughts on this market trade action as we wrapped up Thursday session and look to the end of the week and really look to the end of the month of January already. That is extremely hard to believe. On the weather front, we continue to to watch a low-pressure system work its way through parts of the southern plains and extending up into parts of the uh, central Midwest and eastern Midwest on the day Thursday. Pretty heavy rain. 
potential of maybe a little bit of severe weather risk as well in parts of the southeast. And I know that some of that heavy rain in parts of the south of Delta going to help out with the drought issues that they have had down there. So that's one welcome relief. Hopefully can avoid some of the extreme severe weather be interesting to see how this weather pattern it just seems to be centering with some of this rain activity over these same areas here late in the week while the rest of the country remaining relatively dry and looking at above normal temperatures for the most part here through the end of the month of january that's something to keep our eyes on as well Will we get back to a colder pattern, though, in February? That's something that remains to be seen. I know we'll talk about that coming up here next week on the show with Eric Snodgrass from Nutrien. Coming up next, though, we're going to take a look at a new report from CoBank, their knowledge exchange looking at the dairy industry. Corey Geiger, lead dairy economist at CoBank, is going to join us to discuss that report that he authored and also give us some thoughts on the dairy markets in general. We'll get to that conversation next here on Market Talk. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Well, earlier this week, I had a conversation with Corey Geiger, the lead dairy economist at CoBank during AOA, talking about a new report he has out and the dairy industry as a whole. Let's listen back to part of that interview with Corey Geiger from CoBank. Well, let's dive in, and uh, I want to get a, a little background on the new report. Uh, we're looking at the uh, the benefits uh, for the dairy industry, the adoption of genomics, and the impact it's having on sustainability. That's one of the big backgrounds it looked like to your report. Can you give us some, just kind of the thousand-foot view of uh, the new report out on the Knowledge Exchange? Mm -hmm. I think in, within dairy circles and certainly among geneticists, we are really good about talking about genomics, but probably don't talk about that as well with the greater community around us. The dairy cow is the most studied animal, on the, domestic animal on the planet. And by taking a DNA sample, you know, the root ball, getting the DNA snips, we can compare a, a newborn calf really to the overall population and know what 70% accuracy, what that calf will do as a cow two years later. It's an incredible science and it's really changing dairy tremendously. Well, and thinking about those changes in dairy and just all the benefits, I mean, I feel like as, as we move forward and look at sustainability and the efficiency of our dairy herds, uh, there, are, there are so many benefits to looking at, at different ways to be efficient on our operations, isn't it? It certainly is. And genomics goes so far beyond the production traits. That's probably the easiest thing to quantify. But we're making cows that are breeding cows that are longer lived. We're breeding healthier cows. And so we're using uh, traditional breeding tools, but throwing in the uh, DNA science of it 
studying a genome. You know, a lot of viewers certainly have heard uh, of Ancestry and uh, all the work that's being done on finding relatives and all that. This is the same science that we're doing, except we're using it on cows. Well, and thinking about, you know, producing more milk, more butter fat, more protein with fewer resources, that speaks to the heart of, you know, sustainability and sustainable dairy production. Um, what are you seeing in terms of some of the, are, are we, I guess, are we already seeing various market impacts potentially uh, from developing, you know, our genomics and, and seeing some of this already in the dairy industry? Are we having any sort of wide ranging impacts on, on the markets uh, overall in dairy right now? Mm -hmm. So dairy farmers are adopting this at various rates, but there's two things that are taking place. So since about the science was introduced in 2008, it was a little slow to take off, but now it's running by gangbusters. So the number one thing, most of the cows in the United States and, and heifers too, are bred via artificial insemination. So uh, the bulls that are being selected, you know, prior to genomics, we were increasing at about $36 a year genetic gain, and that's leapfrog to 83. So big jump there. So that's just from the, the sire or dad side. Then you got the uh, what's taking place in the cows. And about 20 to 25% of the uh, animals, the newborn calves in this country, are getting tested on an annual basis. So that's one part of it. Prior to genomics, our genetic gain on butterfat pounds was running about half of a percent a year. And that's nearly tripled to 1.75% on butterfat. And the protein story is about the same. It's, it's doubled. So we are, um, we're just being so much more accurate in what we're doing. It we, is one of the big outcomes of that. I know something, too, as I was looking through the report, you, you talked a little bit about uh, some of the indexes that track genetic progress. I know one of those is the net merit index. For folks who maybe are unaware of what that is, can you, you talk about that and, and maybe what some of the data from that index has shown in, in terms of genetics and genetic selection? Mm -hmm. So the net merit index is a really good index because it puts it on U.S. dollars. So it, it bundles in like 40 traits into one index. So it's, it's, it's a good uh, barometer of breeding and progress in the genetic capability of animals. So one of the big components is uh, production, of course. And then there's a bundle of health traits ranging from somatic cell count, which is an indicator of one of the large, you know, cows get mastitis. So that's, but there's other diseases out there. Uh, then there's longevity, how long the cow will live. And then some newer traits like this feed saved uh, trait, which means some cows convert feed to milk more efficiently than others. And, and that's really one of the sustainability traits that's new to that bundle. So it, it puts it all together. And we've, in, in the United States, we started recording production per, on cows way back in 1895. Now that built over time. Then in the 1950s, we were able to cryogenically freeze semen. So you could freeze bull semen and unthought 50 years later, and it'll still result in heifer calf. So you had those two things. Uh, we started progeny testing animals, which meant uh, we would compare daughters from one bull versus the others. And then we've come along here to the genomic side of the equation, which is a d dynamic science. So all this is built on each other. 
And the power of genomics is not the DNA. The power of genomics in the United States is the 123 million dairy cow records in the system that we can take one animal and compare it against the whole population. And that is the super fuel for this. Well, I know uh, folks can read through the full report uh, that you authored on the Knowledge Exchange, cobank.com, and just find the Knowledge Exchange tab. You can learn more there. Corey, I should ask you while we have you on with us here today, just your overall thoughts, uh, kind of an economic view of the dairy market in general here as we begin a new year, 2024. I know dairy producers have had their ups and downs here in recent years in terms of price action and more and things like that. Just what are your thoughts on this overall dairy market picture from your economist standpoint as we begin 2024? What should folks be watching for and keep in mind right now? Yeah, there's a number of factors here. And certainly we talk about what's happening on a milk check and then what's happening on the feed side of the equation. So, uh, you know, corn is a commodity a lot of cows eat. That's down about $2 per bushel compared to the same time last year. And soybean meal is dropping. So on the feed side, that's a good part for dairy farmers. But uh, milk checks, we're looking about the same as we did last year. Now, drilling a little deeper, uh, the class four markets, which are butter powder, so a lot of those are uh, West Coast markets, uh, especially in the Western co uh, California, Washington, and Oregon, those prices are trending higher by two to four dollars per hundredweight uh, this spring. And class three's down. Class three's typically been a leader, so those in, uh, markets that make a lot, uh, produce milk that goes to cheese, spring's going to be a little soft. Now, the second half of the year looks like it could rebound rather well. One other interesting market development in 2023, so 92% of the milk in the U.S. is priced on multiple component pricing. So we're really interested in what's the solids in the milk, not the water. And so butterfat and protein are the two biggest components. And in 2023, butterfat led, and it looks like it'll lead again this year. So if people, consumers are buying full fat dairy products because they're taste good. And quite frankly, the saturated fats in them have been proven to be healthy for you. This, you know, that's a big reversal on the science, Jesse. Well, Corey, uh, another thought too, with the overall economic picture that we have right now in the U.S., is there any concern uh, about consumer demand and retail demand for dairy products here as we begin 2024 from your perspective? Mm-hmm. So for dairy, domestic consumption has been growing, and even this past year it has. Now, there's been a little dip here. I think part of it in late in the fall and early winter, uh, there's, you know, the student forgiveness program on loan debt uh, came off the books. And so people are rebalancing their budgets. We've seen a little bit of that. But domestic dairy consumption and animal protein has been pretty strong here and should continue. The U.S. these days, though, are exporting about, 16 to 18% of the milk production in the former dairy products. And exports have been a little soft because the U.S. economy has been doing rather well, but international economies have not, especially in the Southeast Asia and China. Uh, one factor here uh, is that China's gross domestic product is slid back to about 64% of that compared to the U.S. And at its height, about 
right before pandemic started in 2021, it was 75%. So China buys 20% of the internationally traded dairy products. So if China backs off, it kind of changes everything. Well, once again, that was a conversation I had earlier this week on AOA with Corey Geiger from CoBank, their lead dairy economist. And you can learn more, read his full article and more. Just go to the Knowledge Exchange section at CoBank.com for more information. Again, CoBank.com, you'll see the Knowledge Exchange tab up at the top. You can click on that and find the report on dairy from Corey Geiger. All right, coming up next, we're going to take a look at the market action we saw on Thursday. Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing joins us next here on Market Talk. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Market information that matters to you on Market Talk. Now, back to Market Talk with Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on Market Talk as we take a recap of Thursday's market action, Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing joins us on the show here today. Brian, good to have you back on with us here this week. And as I take a look at some of that market action, uh, kind of a disappointing day for the soy complex really across the board. It looked like those weekly export sales were pretty poor as well on Thursday morning, Brian. Yeah, it depends how you want to look at it. So I look at it, the numbers are pretty steady, um, but the, the trade was disappointed in the bean number, or at least it's looking for a reason to rationalize beans down today, and they were down. Other rationalizations, product values were lower today. Maybe some increased rain in the forecast. Argentina had a pretty hot, dry forecast yesterday in the next 10 days, and that might have been revised a little bit wetter now a little sooner. So we'll have to see what that suffice to say when I look at the export sales number soybeans at 20.6 million it's not a great number it's not a train wreck corn 37.6 that's respectable and corn really reacted today as such uh, if you were looking at just that number trading down only a half a cent but beans were the loser the product values continue to soften I'll tell you I think the anchor in the bean complex is just the combination of talking of more crush so you have more meal and the oil isn't picking up the slack um, other countries are, are not buying it hand over fist, first of all. Second of all, animal fats and other substitutes are also in the play. And um, just demand for, for fuels. You've got more uh, rigs online now in the U.S. for crude oil production. Um, so just a lot of things out there that uh, seem to be keeping the soybean oil uh, you know, hitting its lowest level of the year here. Well, and I look at these markets as well, Brian, and I see, you know, the wheat trade having a decent day. It's had a couple days strung together, and we've had some lower dollar action. We've had a lot of economic data out this week as well for uh, the U.S. with GDP, but also the, a lot of this Chinese stimulus, too. That seems to be a, a big talking point, point here throughout this entire uh, grain trade as well this week, it seems, Brian. <laughs> It does. And you know what was impressive about wheat today? Not today's close. It wasn't anything crazy or wild, but Kansas City did all right. You had the May up eight cents, March up 11 and a quarter. Chicago wheat, though, a half to one and three quarters higher. 
uh, with with May uh, closing today at 622. Uh, March Chicago, we'd have a penny and a half, 612. But we had a really good day yesterday. It got through some major, major uh, moving averages on the charts and just closed a little bit above them. Prices went back under them today and then came right back. And so I've got to be somewhat encouraged by the technical signs we're starting to see in the wheat complex. Plus, you might argue that you had a very kind of narrow downward channel line here that the market broke through pretty decisively yesterday. So the technicals are looking a little better. But big picture perspective there is is that from a worldwide view, and we've talked about this before, there's not a lot of room to air for the world on production this year for those countries that export wheat. And so maybe building a little more price premium in. It's not a lot, but building some price premium to where the market bottomed which is already getting fairly behind the market. That was the end of November when the market bottomed. So, so we just kind of, uh, kind of, uh, where the light might be shining right now, even though it's not changing much, uh, the demand side and supply side look like they're improving. Some folks have brought this up to me and I'll ask you the same question here, Brian, uh, you know, looking at charts and stochastics and all the different technical indicators out here in these grain markets. Some folks are, are arguing that we're building a solid base here, so to speak, across the board. Do you see that? Do you think that's the case here in these grain markets as a whole? Are we building a base right now? Oh, let's let's break that up. And the wheat, absolutely, you're building a base. Uh, as an example, the March wheat contract, uh, just for what it's worth, because you said, where's it trade? It's trade at 612. It was trading at 612 back in September. Um, that's about a month. So you got about six to seven months there where the market has been trading at the same price. We've been higher, we've been lower. But if you look at a chart, you're really carving out a really nice sideways pattern uh, with, with a low and a high where you kind of spiked on both. So so when you narrow that, that trend in, you can really make that arguably the, the case. Now let's jump over to corn. Uh, so corn had all this volatility. And when you break it down though into the, uh, when I say volatility after the USDA report, new lows, and then we've been kind of consolidating, trying to grind a little bit higher. But when I look at the weekly chart, still big downtrend, I can't get away from that. But if you look at the price this week, so far trading six and a quarter higher, last week's close uh, on the weekly charts had the contract finishing the week at, um, 445 and a half in the week before uh, finished at uh, just just a little bit just a penny and a half higher than that finished at 447 mm -hmm. so when you think about the last three weeks you've got three weeks of consolidation we got past that first week of January and now we're consolidating the market very well I can't tell you that we turned the trend but I'm impressed with that and then if we look at the last I'll just quickly go through that bean complex or I'll just go through the bean market itself uh, on the week again, weekly charts here on January 8th, March beans closed 1224 and a quarter. Where are they today? 1223. Three weeks of consolidation so far. Yeah, and so I appreciate you breaking those down for us. And it really feels like, you know, as we look at the grains, I know a lot of farmers, there is plenty of uh, unpriced commodity out there, unpriced bushels out there still. Uh, some folks are, are looking at this market. They're scratching their heads a little bit. Uh, so give us some perspective here, risk management-wise, Brian. I mean, anything stand out to you for folks to think about here in the grains at this juncture right now? 
Well, let's go back to what we just talked about. We're consolidating in the marketplace right now. And part of that consolidation occurs when the market tries to rally, it runs out of gas because farmers have product to sell and they are selling it and they need to sell it. Um, and so when I look at, at the price patterns we've seen and then talk to farmers, I get a sense that, you know, we're in one of those periods right now that the market just has to grind through the supply. Um, and every day is just a few more bushels less on hand that we have. And then the, then you got weather markets that become more important in the Southern hemisphere in the weeks and months ahead and then the Northern hemisphere. Um, but more from a, from a perspective of what can you do? What should I do? No easy answers right now. If you're one that usually says, Hey, I like to sell call options and collect premium and challenge to move higher. Volatility is low. Not a lot of premium. You can do it, but you gotta be careful. But puts are cheaply priced too compared to in a volatile window. So I might encourage that farmers, if they're in doubt, still buy puts against the market, particularly in the rallies, if you don't want to lock in cash. Otherwise, just be steady, Eddie. Keep selling the cash. If you sell the cash, generate the cash flow, get rid of the market risk, go back in, buy something out to July or even September on the option front. You buy a call option or bull call spread and put yourself back in the game. If anybody can tell me or anybody else what, what Brazil is going to look like 90 days from now, hats off to you. I can very well guess. But boy, you know, if they have any kind of weather event or problems, all of a sudden we rally up and that's not when you should chase the market with calls. You should be buying the calls in low volatility at low prices. Brian over in the livestock trade saw some good gains in the cattle complex, uh, both fats and feeders on the day Thursday. Hogs, a little bit of green on the screen there. Uh, any notes for us in that protein sector uh, as a whole here today? Yeah, big, heavy, short cover rally in the feeders. We've seen this now. We're up three weeks and four weeks in a row. Uh, five weeks ago, we consolidated in the weekly charts. Got above some key moving averages, some really good demand there. Bottom line is, is what we continue to hear from our producers is they, they just aren't out there, right? So the board was beat up, but cash told us something different in the feeders. Now, when we look at the cattle complex today, solid gains. Buck 32 in October, all the way to 237 here in the nearby February, 235 in April. Again, sticking with that friendly bias, cash prices are said to be $2 higher on bids today, and they're not sure they're getting the cattle in. So really good numbers, also reflective on some nasty weather here the last couple of weeks as well. Probably kept that weight gain somewhat in check, movement in check, and uh, it just demand is there. It's not roaring, but we're really starting to see a good technical looking chart. And I think that's part of it here. If I were short cattle and was trying to hang on, I probably have been moving out of my shorts this week or last week. Uh, it just, it, it doesn't look like a market that wants to bend to the downside right now. And you're heading into that seasonal. I use the word seasonal for, let's just call it the next several months where cattle prices typically have their strength. Brian, any final notes for us here today before we let you go? Anything else you want to mention or reiterate for our listeners today? Well, just one for just one view. We'll look at the milk market. Finally seeing some good greens today. Probably some short covering there, too, maybe following the cattle complex up. But in general, I think just keep a sharp pencil to, to everything here. Um, I, I continue to kind of encourage producers, uh, farmers who produce that. Well, and even those who, it depends how you produce, but let's take it from the corn producer or the cattle producer or hog. You, you, you have your production requirements and responsibilities. 
keep an eye on the marketing side of things. Uh, take time to really, really, you know, look at that. We need to keep a sharp pencil and look for every opportunity and turn over every rock. Um, so again, just, just be vigilant, look for opportunities. We're not in markets right now, other than maybe cattle that are going to all of a sudden hit home runs. So we need a lot of base hits to kind of keep this, this game afloat, stay at it. Uh, you know, one bias, I, I don't want to be too worried here, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's a little bit said to be thinking about next year, maybe quite a bit. It might be easier to try and farm at an area that's break even or a little bit of profit than to end up taking big losses if you're just waiting. Because if you just wait, we might have good production next year. So there's just a lot of wheels that are turning that we really need to talk about. Brian, if folks want to reach out to you and ask some questions there at Total Farm Marketing, how can they get a hold of you? I would ask Jesse to give me a call, 800 334 9779. Again, 800 9779. Best way to reach me and ask me questions. Otherwise, Brian with a Y uh, at totalfarmmarketing.com. Shoot me an email or check out our website, uh, totalfarmmarketing.com. With that, Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing. Appreciate you being flexible with my travel schedule today. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Another week in the books, Jesse. Thank you. Stay safe. And we'll be back to wrap up Market Talk of the Way right after this. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button, or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Thanks for sticking with us here today. Well, the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual convention concluded on Tuesday with a session on policy priorities for 2024. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says the farm bill is the top issue. We stress the importance of getting a new farm bill done and how urgent it is to get it done now. Labor was another hot topic, especially around stabilizing the wage rate and ensuring that we can make progress on year-round labor workers. Another takeaway was the artificial intelligence and the need to seize the opportunities related to AI while ensuring that farmers' data is protected. A fourth takeaway relates to contract poultry growers. Our delegates called for a fair pay structure and more transparency among poultry companies. Duvall says the policies begin at the grassroots county level. Then they rise up to the state level at their state conventions where they're discussed, and then it moves on to the national level where we finish that debate at our national convention. This year we had 350 farmers and ranchers delegates from all across the country. And I want to also share an important point. We surveyed them, and 99% of them are family farms, and two-thirds of them come from small to medium-sized farms, and that's based on USDA classifications. We really do represent a diverse agriculture in America. More than 80 speakers and 4,500 registered attendees were at the event this year. 
we had a great convention here in Salt Lake City. The energy level was high among our attendees, and they are very optimistic about the future and taking on new frontiers. We're all looking forward to getting together again next year in San Antonio, Texas. We invite every listener to join us. We want them to mark their calendars now for January 24th through January 29th for the AFEF convention. Now, delegates also voted to create new policy to address the growth of artificial intelligence in agriculture, which has the potential to enhance farming practices and could serve resources. But AFBF says privacy rights must be respected. Delegates also voted to stabilize wage rates for guest workers and revise H-2A and H-2B programs. They reaffirmed their support for increasing reference prices in the farm bill and maintaining a strong crop insurance program, including expanding eligibility to ensure more commodities are covered. Additionally, Farm Bureau delegates agreed to say in the rural communications section of the policy book, quote, we support vehicle manufacturers continuing to include AM radio in vehicles, end quote. Now, beyond policy changes, AFBF President Zippy Duvall and Vice President Scott Vanderwall were unanimously reelected for another two-year term. You can learn more online at fb.org. Well, new data out from the USDA's Economic Research Service shows emergency relief program payments are largely concentrated in North Dakota and Texas. In 2020 and 2021, the U.S. experienced 42 disaster events, each resulting in damages of at least $1 billion, including hurricanes, drought, and wildfires. The emergency relief program provides funds to assist commodity growers who suffered losses from natural disasters in those years. Now, as of January 2023, cumulative payments made through the ERP totaled $7.3 billion. USDA dispersed a large portion of this total $1.16 billion to North Dakota producers of corn, soybeans, and wheat who experienced flooding in 2020 and drought in 2021. Texas producers also received a sizable portion of payments, with cotton farmers receiving $510 million of the $909 million dispersed in that state. Producers in North Dakota and Texas received most ERP payments for revenue, quality, or production losses because of moisture and drought that occurred during the 2020 and 2021 crop years. Sustainable aviation fuel could grow into the largest new market ever seen for U.S. farm commodities thanks to the start of production at Lanza Jet Freedom Pines Fuels. However, groups in Midwestern states say they could miss out on the opportunity without low-carbon ethanol, which requires carbon capture and sequestration. Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw says, quote, today and every day going forward, American farmers and ethanol producers are losing demand until we get carbon capture and sequestration online, end quote. Iowa Corn Usage and Production Committee Chair Dan Keitzer adds, quote, Lanza Jet Freedom Pines Fuels will use a variety of low-carbon sustainable ethanol, making this an eye-opening experience to what Iowa corn farmers could expect to be a part of, end quote. Now, no Iowa ethanol plant currently has a carbon intensity score low enough to qualify as an SAF feedstock. Only one plant in the U.S. using CCS is currently producing sustainable aviation fuel-friendly ethanol. USDA's monthly chicken and eggs report released this week shows December egg production increased 3%. U.S. egg production totaled $9.45 billion during December 2023. Production included 8.14 billion table eggs and 1.31 billion hatching eggs, of which 1.21 billion were broiler type and 97 million were egg type. Now, the total number of layers during December 2023 averaged 384 million, up 2% from last year. December egg production per 100 layers was 2,460. 
62 eggs, up 1% from December of 2022. All layers in the United States on January 1st of this year totaled 379 million, up 1% from last year. The 379 million layers consisted of 312 million layers producing table or market type eggs, 63.6 million layers producing broiler type hatching eggs, and 3.83 million layers producing egg type hatching eggs. Rate of lay per day on January 1 of this year averaged 79.3 eggs per 100 layers, up 2% from January 1 of 2023. And also here as we wrap up today's program, partisan disputes that kept ag lawmakers from realizing a new farm bill last year are showing up again in a tug-of-war between feeding and farm programs. It's still a fixed pot of farm bill money, so the age-old farm versus nutrition program fight continues only more intensely. Ag Republicans and farm groups want more dollars to boost ARC and PLC support triggers. Democrats want to protect feeding and climate dollars. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst in a Senate hallway interview was asked about Ag Chair Debbie Stabenow's plan to boost crop insurance at the expense of ARC and PLC. We need more farm in the farm bill, bottom line. Um, all this little shell game stuff, we've got to stop this. Uh, the SNAP program has exploded and we can't continue on a path like this. SNAP and other nutrition programs comprise some 82% of the farm bill. Ag Republicans argue Stabenow and Democrats must return food stamp funding to pre-pandemic levels. And I, I hope she understands that and that we've got to be serious about coming back to the table and negotiating what's in the bill. Now, however, Senate Ag Chair Debbie Stabenow recently said the same about the other side. We can get this done if people are serious. If, if people are serious about it, I'm serious about it. So the finger pointing continues. The old farm law lapsed in September with its outdated crop supports extended one year. But the clock is ticking as other disputes over spending bills, foreign military aid, border security and taxes eat up precious floor time before the party conventions this summer and fall election campaigning. So a lot of work to get done yet on a new farm bill and more. With that, we're out of time here on Market Talk. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day.